Covert Action. Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio program and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm Chris Garaffa. And I'm Rachel Hu. We're very happy to be here with you on Covert Action Bulletin. To mark the occasion of the coronation of King Charles III, Julian Assange wrote a scathing public letter to the new monarch from his cell at Belmarsh Prison, where he's been held for over four years. The full letter is available on WikiLeaks' Twitter account. In it, Assange writes, quote, It is here that 687 of your loyal subjects are held, supporting the United Kingdom's record as the nation with the largest prison population in Western Europe. As your noble government has recently declared, your kingdom is currently undergoing, quote, the biggest expansion of prison places in over a century, end quote. With its ambitious projections showing an increase of the prison population from 82,000 to 106,000 within the next four years. Quite the legacy indeed. As a political prisoner held at your majesty's pleasure on behalf of an embarrassed foreign sovereign, I am honored to reside within the walls of this world-class institution. Truly, your kingdom knows no bounds. End quote. That was from Assange's letter. My God, so much to get into there. But either way, I, the other kind of element of the coronation that I want to bring in here is that in London, on the day of the coronation, also the Brazilian president called for Assange to be released. Quote, I will even speak in front of journalists. It is embarrassment that a journalist who denounced trickery by one state against another is arrested, condemned to die in jail, and we do nothing to free him. That's what Lula said at a press conference. King Charles' extravagant coronation is estimated to have cost between 100 and 250 million pounds at a time when the country is seeing a series of crises around wages, cost of livings, and benefits being cut. So to talk more about this, we are joined by Natalia Marquez, writer at People's Dispatch. Welcome to the show, Natalia. Thank you for having me. So glad you could be here. I mean, Assange's words are, I mean... They are spot on, just like really, you know, if, if anything, it's a really great moment for Assange's case to be brought back up in the spotlight. But I, I think one of the things that's been really getting people upset about the coronation is absolutely the price and the fact that the coronation was funded by tax dollars. I didn't know that when I started reading more into that, I was blown away that they used public funds to fund the the, the monarchy. I just I don't know. I don't know what your immediate thoughts of that, Natalia, were, but it was it was crazy. I mean, I think the whole process is quite barbaric when you think about it. I mean, you have a major country still, um, you know, led by a monarch, right, um, with a very, you know, bloody legacy of plunder and racism and slave trading, obviously, like when we look at how they actually acquired some of that wealth. But even looking like more domestically, the living conditions of people in the UK are very poor. They're extremely poor right now. And for um, a coronation to cost $125 million of public money is, is a real slap in the face to people who, you know, can't afford food. You know, last month, um, a woman, um, died of hypothermia in the UK because she couldn't pay for heat, right? Like a, like an elderly woman, um, an elderly woman who had been working until, um, 82 years of age, right? Um, because of, you know, the dire conditions in the country. But, um, then at the same time, you have, um, you know, uh, King, who already has billions in his own assets, who's inherited billions. Keep in mind, these billions of dollars are tax-free. For some reason, he gets all of these tax breaks from the UK government. 
Um, and he also decides to, instead of using his own money, of which he has a lot, um, to fund his coronation, he's using public money, uh, money that is actually being diverted from, um, you know, services like food banks, right? Um, it's, it's so blatant. Um, and I think that, um, the fact that the monarchy and the coronation has sort of dipped in popularity in many ways, you know, the monarchy is not as popular as it used to be. And also most people in, um, the UK did, do not think that, um, 51%, I believe, do not think that the coronation should have used public funds. I think this is a signal that people are tired of this, that people are not as beholden to the monarchy as the monarchy might, might feel, right? Um, and are really looking at this extravagance and really seeing the, the toll that it has on working people in the UK. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, this is a monarchy that is responsible historically through so many through history for so many crimes against not just people in in the UK but people around the world i mean the money that was spent on this the the hundreds of millions that the royal family is worth should be going to reparations within the UK and and globally um you know we we have to look at you know queen elizabeth II as well of course the the predecessor um you know some of just the five biggest uh, atrocities under her reign, um, you know, were from, you know, starting in like 1948, the Malayan emergency, uh, as it was called, the repression of the Mau Mau's, the war in Yemen, and so many more. Um, but also things in, you know, in uh, in Northern Ireland and Derry, we can't forget Bloody Sunday, which happened under her reign as well. And so for all of these millions and millions to be spent of public money uh, you know, is is offensive. It should be offensive to everyone. And as you said, like 51% of people think that it should not be funded publicly, that like the people in the UK should not be fund, you know, paying for this lavish coronation. And there's also reporting that the king actually rejected um, a cut price coronation, what they say. And this was reported in uh, The Telegraph a few months ago because he wanted, quote, glorious pomp and pageantry. Um, he wanted to showcase UK PLC, meaning like, you know, the business of the UK internationally. So this is, you know, of course, a conversation that's been being had in, you know, the in the government and in the royal family, not just, you know, not just recently, but this has been happening for quite some time. It was, you know, well known how, you know, Queen Elizabeth was elderly. She was going to die at some point. Um, this isn't something that in December or, you know, late last year, the king just decided this is a, you know, and I think Assange does, you know, pointed out extremely well with some of his his language. And I think his letter was just wonderful, a wonderful letter. But really that this this state, this government, the pomp and circumstance and everything it's doing uh, to show itself off with this coronation to try to maintain its relevancy in the modern world really also does reflect on uh, what he said about the U.S., the embarrassed foreign sovereign. Uh, these are two countries that are trying to maintain their relevancy and are offended that they cannot maintain global hegemony. That's kind of how I'm looking at this, right? And that's one of the reasons that they would have spent so much money on this. I mean, the U.S. and NATO are being, they're being embarrassed, first of all, in Ukraine because there hasn't been this spring offensive that's coming any day now and has been coming any day now. Um, they ha weren't able to 
you know, beat back the Russian forces with the NATO defenses. But also when we look at, you know, the rise of China around the world economically and politically, they're being beaten back there as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, just just putting on this this lavish, disgusting show uh, really, to me, signals just this panic that they must be in. Definitely. And they're so tone deaf. I mean, like, this is just profoundly tone deaf. I mean, right now, there is a cost of living crisis in the UK, not just the US. I mean, the UK is dealing with the same exact thing. There's many local governments that can't afford nurses, teachers. Like, it's a really serious issue there. And to me, that this is this is what you're going to come out and spend all this money on is it's just profoundly it just disturbs me on some level. I mean, the king has what about 1.8 billion pounds like that's his wealth estimates. And so if that's the amount of money that they're estimated to have, there is no reason why the the royal family couldn't just pay for it themselves. But I, I think it brings up this bigger idea uh, of really, to me, also the fact that there are these shifting tides in tally like you talked about. I think this is a really interesting point of this because there were many anti-monarch protesters that were out on coronation day and in fact in the last few days you know the the london police have been getting a lot of flack because and they actually said they might regret which i'm stunned that police would ever say the word regret i mean like you know whatever i'll give it to them but they said they might regret the fact that they arrested pretty brutally 64 protesters who were against the monarchy so I think it's kind of an interesting kind of point in here, too, that the, the shifting tides are coming with protests and they're coming with people actually standing up and saying something because it, it really is just so it's like spitting in the face of everyday people. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Rachel, because, you know, King Charles himself as a figure is profoundly out of touch with the world. Right. Like this is someone who has servants squeeze his toothpaste for him. And he, oh my God. <laughs> um, he works through lunch and that means that none of his servants can eat lunch. Um, so this is like, this is the type of person that we're dealing with. Um, and to add insult to injury, um, he, he like essentially is saying that he's announcing a, a big charity day in which he's encouraging, um, people in the UK to go out and volunteer to celebrate his legacy of public service or whatever, right? Um, and it's just ridiculous that a man who's worth billions of dollars, who is the largest landowner in the UK now, I believe, um, is asking other people to do charity for him when, you know, how many people could those billions feed and house and provide heat for and clothe and, and what have you in a time where when the UK, like, as you mentioned, is going through a cost of living crisis, um, you know, they narrowly dodged a recession um, there's a record number of um, people in the UK that are going to food banks now for food. And, you know, this is really only scratching the surface of who's actually food insecure. I believe that I saw a statistic recently that was like only 14 percent of food insecure people actually go to food banks. So that's really only like scratching the surface of of the real crisis. Um, and now we have like an $125 million subsidy to who's like essentially one of the richest people in England, if not the world, right? Um, when the UK is experiencing record amounts of poverty um, due to the cost of living crisis. And I did also um, want to connect it to the larger conversation about, um, you know, wealth inequality and elites. I, I briefly looked this up, but presidential inaugurations, the last presidential inauguration cost about $100 million. Um, and Trump's inauguration cost about $200 million. Um, so when we think about like, 
you know, this is a monarchy. It's obviously extremely barbaric and backwards and medieval, but um, any, you know, capitalist nation with an elite class is going to have these extravagant expenses. I'll actually have to look if inaugurations are entirely publicly funded, but I assume they probably are. Um, and yeah, we, you know, we need to look inward, at, you know, at the U.S. as well and the ways that the U.S. does perpetuate this, but maybe not as obviously, right? Um, the the whole pomp and circumstance of the coronation is um, especially a slap in the face, right? When you have like the full gold carriage um, and, you know, the the diamond scepter with the diamond that was like stolen from, I believe, India. I'm not sure. India, yeah. India, yes. Um, and it's it's just so, so blatantly obvious. But, um, you know, this is a problem in, in capitalist countries, right, where, you know, elites are the ones who are bankrolled by the government, right? It's King Charles, it's the royal family that that pays, ta- that doesn't pay taxes on their on their assets when, you know, obviously they can afford to like that really should be a crime. Um, and the same thing happens in the US, you know, billionaires find all sorts of ways to not pay taxes and spend, you know, extravagant amounts of you know, public money um, and never give it back. Right. So um, it's a very pervasive problem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I want to throw this in here too. just those crowns that they were wearing, the king and the queen, they were worth just the crown, something like six point five million dollars, like just the amount of jewels that were in them. But it's a really well taken point. I mean, it's it's important too to bring out the word medieval. I really like that because it's like literally medieval to have kings and queens. It's so backwards. I mean, Sweden decided that the concept of a coronation, which they still have a monarchy, but the the idea of the pomp and circumstance of the monarchy, they decided that was outdated in 1870. That's when Sweden was like, okay, this is this is outdated as a concept. And here we are in 2023 still doing the same thing. But I think rich people are just going to rich people are going to rich people stuff. Like, I don't even know the right word for that. But essentially, rich people are going to do this because this is what makes them feel good about themselves. This is what they want. They just genuinely do not care about everyday people at all. And to bring this into just talking about the, the, the tax element here is that they don't pay taxes, period. I mean, literally since 1992, they chose to volunteer. The royal family chose to voluntarily pay income tax based on some estates. They don't really disclose where the money exactly comes from, all the details of that. But they are not legally required to pay income tax, capital gains tax, inheritance tax. They do pay, I think, I think like local council tax or something like that. I'm not super familiar with all the tax codes in the UK, but ultimately those are the big ones and they don't pay them. I mean, they have 18,000 hectares of property and it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. It has castles, shopping centers. So all the money they're generating on these shopping centers, there's a lot more questions about where the monarchy's money comes from, where it's going, but it's never been taxed by the government at any single point. So I want to say this to say that I think when we're talking about the the, the ultra wealthy, when we're talking about the rich, we really need to be very clear that that fundamentally they're our class enemy. And I say this because I think that the the royal family's done a really brilliant job of this kind of rebranding where they've gone from being like actually the genocidal maniacs who killed people in mass around the world. The most literally they are the 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 where racism comes from, the stem of like colonial racism. It's like actually directly from the royal family. They've somehow rebranded away from these genocidal maniacs into being like quirky, cute, fun. I don't know, like 
like all this cool glamour, like they're like celebrities. They're trying to be like the Kardashians, which is a weird inversion because I feel like the Kardashians are a bit of the U.S.'s royal family in its own way. But I think that it's important that we see through that guise because a lot of people around the world are like, well, what's the harm? You know, what is all this? But I think this coronation brought to the forefront, there's direct harm. And the fact that you're using public money when people are starving to to pay for this nonsense, I think really speaks to that, Chris. I mean, I don't know what you're thinking about this, but that was my immediate thought, too. Well, I actually wanted to go back just to the the, the presidential inaugurations thing, because I think it's such an important thing to talk about. So candidate, well, pre- once they're elected, president elects, presidents elect, I guess the term would be, have to actually fundraise to cover the cost of their own inauguration. Everything except the ceremony itself, the balls, the parades, all of those things. Actually, they also fundraise. So where do they fundraise from? They fundraise from their corporate donors. Obama famously didn't take um, a lot of corporate money in 2009, especially like fossil fuel money for uh, for his inauguration. But he Gave up. He gave up on that in 2013 for that for his second inauguration <laughs> and took fossil fuel money. Uh, you know, Trump brought in many, many, many millions of dollars, of course, for his 2017 inauguration. But D.C. was still said based on what we've uh, the, the, the D.C. government had to actually go to Congress and say, we're going to need another forty five million dollars for the inauguration based on the conversations we've had with the Trump uh, campaign and all of those things. Um, And the you know, trying to get, you know, four years later, trying to get all of that money back. So just a very interesting thing to connect that because like the corporate interests in the U.S. still play a huge role in not just the election, but literally in the inauguration in that that. The celebration of, you know, of the the new president being sworn in literally everything except the the one part where he raises his hand. So I just wanted to go back to that because I always thought that that was a super, super interesting thing. But, you know, on the question of, you know, the monarchy, the thing you hear from monarchists all the time, right, is that, oh, they are the monarchy is, you know, it they're just figureheads. They're just, you know, that they bring in tax money like people go to visit Buckingham Palace. I'm sorry, people would still go visit it like if it were just a museum. Right. Like people that, you know, it's nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. And I'm, I'm so tired of hearing those those arguments um, that's like, oh, we have to have a king and a queen here. You know, if you go, you know, even in the like in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, you know, you still have kind of, a you know, you still have a monarch. But a lot of the old palaces have been turned into uh, they've been turned into you know museums like art museums, history museums, whatever they are. And they bring in a ton of people and they bring in, you know, a ton of money. And that's certainly possible. So that just like throws that one that one minor argument, but the one that you hear all the time just completely down the drain. Yeah, I think a, a conservative argument that I've heard um, for the monarchy is that, like, you know, it's national pride. It's a symbol of of the nation. But I mean, why would you want to be associated with that sort of symbol? Right. The royal family, you know, Rachel, as you were talking about, really is like um, they were in charge of, you know, colonialism and racism and slave trade. That is they were the ones in power. If there's anyone to blame, if there's any group of individuals to blame for those things, which to some extent there is not. It's a systemic problem. But if there is a group of individuals to blame for colonialism, it is the royal family, right? Um, and so, you know, I I am glad to see that overwhelmingly, especially young people in the UK, um, no longer identify as much with the royal family, right? So um, I mentioned the 51% that um, did not believe that the coronation should be state-funded. And um, among 18 to 24 year olds, it was 62 percent. 
Um, and for the over 65 year olds, it was more evenly split. Um, and, you know, in, in many different polls, um, it's been shown that, you know, the younger people, especially, um, no longer feel favorably towards their royal family. Um, they no longer feel like it's important or legitimate. Um, and I think that, that, you know, brings me a little hope that this very outdated institution, I mean, which should have been abolished with the English Revolution in like the 1600s, right? Um, this very outdated institution will eventually leave us because right now it's costing um, people in the UK, average working people in the UK, billions of dollars in money that's essentially theirs. Um, it's a very blatant display of stolen wealth, whether stolen from taxpayers or stolen from countries in the global south. Um, and it's just it's medieval. It's it's silly. Right. And it's um, the the idea that like these are only figureheads is is not really even a true one. Right. Because there's um there's a Sarah like every every single piece of legislation, I believe, in Britain has to be approved by the monarch. It's a largely ceremonial thing. It's called royal assent. But um, it's a very ridiculous ceremony. I was trying to look it up on YouTube and it's it's very funny. Um, but also like the queen um, directly lobbied um, parliament, I believe, to to find ways to conceal her private fortune. So like, you know, they obviously have influence, right? They're not just, you know, nobodies. It's not like they have no power. They're the royal family. Um, and so, you know, these are people that are in a medieval institution. They should not be as rich as they were. This is all inherited money. Um, and yeah, it really, it really just has to go. Yeah, definitely, Natalia. It really does. And one of the things I was thinking about, too, as you were talking, there were some other elements I wanted to pull in here to, to get back to this point you're making about how people in the U.S. is are the billionaires really that different from the monarchy? I, I think it's like it really has primed us in the U.S. to be very excited about the monarchy, which is surprising. I mean, the U.S. were formally taught in school that the foundation of the United States is to be against the crown. I mean, that's like supposedly the revolutionary history of the United States. And yet somehow it's quite popular consciousness here that people really do follow this stuff closely. I mean, what was it? Katy Perry was performing at the um, the coronation and it's like American pop idols. So there's just so much relentless coverage on entertainment channels about this, uh, about the coronation, about the royal family more generally. So I do think it's kind of an important, uh, interesting thing to note that I think Americans are just seeped in a cultural ideology of the adoration of wealth. I think that that's such a big part of, of what the United States has always pushed on the people in the United States, that that money is everything. Money is absolute and wealth is absolute. And that that must be worshipped appropriately. And so I think whether or not you are formally worshipping a monarchy, in some ways you're worshipping the same concepts, uh, it, like the same idea that there should be just deep wealth inequality, but it's its own, of course, thing. Of course, as a capitalist system, it is different than a feudal system. But I, I think that those connections to me really do say something. I mean, in the U.S., I also feel that people kind of view the monarchy, uh, kings and queens, as so, so, so long ago. And it really, I mean, not only is it happening right now, but the actual legacy of the monarchs, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, the Falcon Islands in Argentina, that was not that long ago. I mean, that whole situation was not that long ago. And the, the monarchy was definitely responsible for that. So I think that there's a, a lot here in the culture of the United States, the worship of capital, the worship of wealth, and, and generally this, this idea of worshiping just the, this, this, this concept of absolute power, even that makes it a perfect fit for people here to be looking at the monarchs in the same way that we kind of look at Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. I mean, 
people really think they have some weird relationship with Elon Musk. Like the same way people talk about Elon Musk where they call him Elon. I'm like, listen, he's not your friend. Like you don't know him. Like the way people talk about Elon Musk on Twitter is very interpersonal. And it does remind me of the way that there's this weird belovedness of the queen. But Chris, I'm, I'm curious if you feel the same way. I mean, I, I certainly do feel the same way. I mean, the, these kind of parasocial relationships that people create with the wealthy, with the famous, you know, with the Kardashians, with Elon Musk, with the, you know, I remember I was, you know, a teenager when Princess Diana died. Right. And, you know, that that tragic car crash and all of that. But it was I mean, in the U.S., it was in the news and in the media. I mean, weeks. It went on for weeks. You know, Time had their special covers and People magazine. You know, when you go to the go to the grocery store and you'd be checking out and they had like all these different special things about Princess Diana. Not to like, you know, single her out, whatever, but like just do this obsession with the monarchy and with especially the British monarchy. Uh, but I also think about how, you know, in the 60s, you know, the presidency of JFK, like the White House was called Camelot. You know, going back to, uh, you know, the legend of King Arthur. Right. And like there was this like this beautiful, gorgeous, famous family, the Kennedys, also wealthy, you know, in, in the White House. But, you know, calling it Camelot. I mean, just hearkening back to that, that monarchist uh, time. Um, but, you know, I'm also thinking about how, you know, in the U.S., we also have this, you know, we call it the special relationship between the U.S. government and the U.K. government. And it's been like that. I mean, certainly since the end of World War II, when the U.S. was not affected uh, at home and saw that it had the opportunity to rebuild Europe effectively and Asia uh, in its own design. And, you know, between the Marshall Plan and other things said, OK, we're going to use relationships and partnerships, for example, with, uh, you know, with South Korea, uh, with the U.K., um, in order to rebuild a Europe that is friendly to capitalism or friendlier to capitalism uh, because of the money they had. And I think it's just interesting to mention that, too, as we are recording this on Victory Day, we are recording this episode on May 9th, which is the day that the USSR defeated, you know, that, that marks the defeat of fascism by the USSR. Yeah, um, I think. I think in the United States, um, we have this fascination with monarchies, but I think it's sort of global in a way as well. Um, when you think about like the French Revolution, how many like stories have we heard of Marie Antoinette? How many movies have been made about her already? Right. And um, when we think about the Russian Revolution, um, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of films that are around like Anastasia, the lost princess or, mm. you know, the royal family and how they were all brutally murdered by communists. But in that conversation, it the the millions of poor women, the the women who were starving, um, the women who um, or the men who went to war, right um, during World War One, um, you know the the atrocities that were committed in the pogroms that were you know encouraged by the monarch in in Russia, or all these all these stories about um, poor people, right, about um, working people. Um, those are the stories that, you know, our media apparatus is not really fixated on at all. Like there's no like real investigation of that. And I think we're seeing this play out in the UK right now where um, there's all of this attention on the royal family. But um, largely silently, people in the UK are suffering on, under this cost of living crisis. And, and those stories really never get told as well. Um, and I think, you know, to some extent, um, you know, we we have this in the U.S. as well. Yes, definitely, because we do have this like unhealthy parasocial um, relationship with billionaires. Right. We we admire um, some of the worst people in the world just for the 
for the reason that they're very powerful and very wealthy. Um, and we don't actually think about the ways that the wealth of the elites is actually directly correlated to our misery, right? The ways that the reason that, you know, um, real estate in New York City is a huge booming business, for example, right? That Trump was able to, you know, um, you know, ride to wealth, right? The reason that it's such a profitable profitable business is because these landlords in New York City are some of the most ruthless landlords in existence, right? Um, people that will raise, jack up the rent, that will never do repairs. Um, and this is true of any, you know, major industry, right? We're seeing a spike in child labor cases across the country, um, a spike since 2018, you know, migrant children are being um, exploited in meatpacking plants, right? Um, and that's that's really the cost of wealth, I think. And that's the cost of, of the elites. That's the cost of having an elite class. Um, and, you know, the the wealthy never really want to show this side of wealth. Right. The, the, what, what it truly takes to become that wealthy. They want to be celebrities. They want to wear nice clothes and be in pictures and be admired, um, but never really um, never really have the public interrogating. Um, how do these people get their wealth in the first place? Um, and yeah, I think that that's something that just needs to be increasingly brought to the fore. Yeah, I mean, all wealth is built on exploitation. I mean, that's the fundamental truth uh, of wealth in uh, in a feudal system or in a capitalist system. It's the same, but the the logic behind them are different. And I think that's one of the things that is uniquely different, of course, about capitalism. There's a lot of differences between feudalism and capitalism, but one of them is the divine right of kings. You know, that uh, under a king, that that there's a god that gives them power. But under a capitalist system, it's a certain type of gaslighting, a certain type of nefarious gaslighting that, well, we all have a meritocracy and whoever works hardest gets gets whatever it is they can get because we're in a free country, unlike the historical, you know, the historical UK and historical Britain that had a, a monarchy where they don't have a free country. So it has its own type of insidiousness, which I think just is interesting in terms of the, the cultural way that we interact with with these ideas. But you did mention New York City. So I do want to bring us over to another story that is very pressing and I think is really bringing in a lot of what we're talking about when it comes to compounded crisis. So in the last few days, I mean, the last few days and the last week, we've seen protesting in New York City pretty relentlessly for the death and the, the, the murder of Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely was a homeless man. He was a 30 year old homeless man, formerly a subway performer who was killed by uh, by a, a ex-Marine, a white ex-Marine. In a chokehold. I mean, I think the man put him in a chokehold for about 15 minutes. It just it just is absolutely it just disgusting how long this man kept him in a chokehold. His name is Daniel Penny. He's originally from Long Island, West Islip. But in some ways, I don't even want to grace him with a name. I mean, this man is a, a cold blooded murderer. And I've seen a lot of very complicated conversations around this emerging because in New York City, uh, as we know, for people that live in New York, you know, I'm in New York. I know, Natalia, you're in New York as well. It's a very complicated situation because the, as as the crisis, the living crisis worsens, as we see more and more evictions taking place, as inflation continues to rise and people are being absolutely squished, we're seeing more and more people living in the streets. And then we're also seeing with that uh, a rise of a lot of fear from people on the trains. And when you ride the trains, it is really scary. I mean, it's a really scary situation. You have people who are in various stages of kind of mental mental illness, yelling at you, possibly grabbing at you. I mean, it's it's very real as the situation worsens. This case is kind of brought to the forefront 
a, a conversation that I think has been brewing for quite some time here in New York uh, about not only the issue of homelessness and the issue uh, of safety, public safety, which a lot of people have, of course, been talking relentlessly about since Eric Adams, Mayor Eric Adams campaign has made that the focal point of his campaign. But it's also brought forward this other question of, of how do we even get here? I mean, Jordan Neely was a, a man who was begging for food. He was literally saying, I am hungry. I'm hungry. Like, I want food. I'm tired. And then he was killed right after. So I think there's so many like factors that go into this case that really put a lightning rod on the situation and our cost of living crisis that's happening right here in New York. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that I'm glad that you brought up that that conversation. I think in the city in general, in general, like I myself have been harassed on the subway. I think that anyone who consistently rides the subway is harassed on the subway, oftentimes by people who might be homeless. But the key difference is that we never really think about killing that person, right? We never really think about putting someone in a chokehold for 15 minutes. Um, you know, the crime is there and the fear is there, but this was such an over-the-top, you know, racist vigilante response that I think it absolutely makes sense for us to be indicting it as heavily as we are because it's ridiculous. You know, it's not something um, New Yorkers can relate to, you know, being harassed. They cannot relate to the level of bloodlust that was really exhibited um, by Daniel Penny. Um, and I think um, in a larger sense, also just zooming out from Daniel Penny as an individual, I think that when you look at Jordan Neely's life, it's really an indictment of capitalism. And I think if you look at any homeless person's life, it's also an indictment of capitalism because the fact that he, you know, was even um, homeless um, without anything to eat in the subway car shouting at people. I mean, it's, it, one of, some of his last words were, you know, I'm fed up, I'm hungry. Um, I don't have a drink. You know, even the fact that like someone's allowed to be shambling up and down a subway car with no care, no home, um, no food is really just in in one of the wealthiest cities in the world is really just such um, an indictment of of the entire system and how it doesn't provide for poor people. You know, um, also Jordan Neely's mother was murdered by her boyfriend when he was very young. He was 14 and he was in the home when it happened. Um, it was a very brutal murder. She was literally found in a suitcase on the side of the road and he had to testify at her murder trial. And you can imagine the sort of trauma that someone lives with after experiencing that. And that's, that's at a, that's a point where, you know, there needs to be some intervention, some mental health support, something, but, um, he really slipped through the cracks, right? He had to make money performing on the subway. Um, he was a Michael Jackson impersonator. That's actually how a lot of people know him because they would see him, um, doing like dancing on, on the subway, performing, what have you. Um, and then he ended up, you know, completely destitute towards the end of his life. So, um, it's, you know, a lot of his friends said that they didn't even know that he was homeless. And, and, and a few have come forward and said that he, he was never violent, even though the media is portraying him as very violent. Um, obviously someone with, you know, trauma and, um, someone who is extremely destitute, but, but not like a violent threat, definitely not in the way that Daniel Penny is. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's, it really says a lot about the entire system too. It, it does. It, and it's, I think it, it gets us into a conversation about violence, right? Because, you know, I mean, I have also been on the New York City subway, felt, you know, uncomfortable for various reasons. I mean, like any, anyone who's been on it other than like going between like Midtown and like, you know, 
I don't know, Brooklyn or something like Williamsburg has felt it. I mean, like, it's just a reality. But the vi- the real violence here, yeah, is first the murder uh, of Jordan Neely, but also the fact that, as you're saying, he was homeless, he was hungry, he, you know, maybe needed some mental health treatment from all of these awful things that he had experienced in his life that capitalism, you know, put him through. And then capitalism can't provide it literally as a system cannot provide for these things. That is the violence. That is the violent act as well. And that, you know, we should say that capitalism should be on trial for the for the death of Jordan Neely just as much uh, as this guy Daniel Penny should, and he absolutely should as well. And, you know, I'm glad that uh, his name finally came out. People figured out who he was because, you know, the cops, I mean, this just is so infuriating. The cops, they held him for a little bit, questioned him, probably just asked him a couple questions. It probably wasn't a questioning like you would think of when somebody is arrested because he wasn't arrested. And then they just let him go. Uh, and he was able to go back to back to Long Island. Um, and I think, you know, for people, especially for people in the area, you you know, some of these areas on Long Island where they're like, oh, don't go to the city. It's the scary, scary New York City. Um, you know, that kind of attitude that people have. But, you know, really, the the ultimate acts of violence here are the murder. But the conditions that, you know, led Jordan Neely to be hungry to have to express himself in such a way on that subway in desperation to just be shouting at anyone who would listen. And it seems like no one was listening that he was had no food. He had no water, nothing to drink. He had nowhere to sleep, but the subway itself, the we know New York has deployed more police onto the subways rather than social workers and housing. There are, you know, Tens of thousands of, and this is a report from the city uh, NYC. Tens of thousands of rent stabilized apartments that are vacant in New York City. That could take everyone in the city who is homeless and put them in an apartment. The money that's spent on policing could be going to food, social services, all of the things that people actually need. But Eric Adams, love former cop, loves the cops, will not cannot provide those services for the people, even though the need is there and the money is clearly there. Definitely, Chris. I want to say this, too. I mean, 13 people yesterday were charged after uh, protesters were charged protesting for Jordan. But the thing that's insane about that is Daniel Penny still isn't charged. I mean, he's still a free man walking free after being a cold blooded murderer. And I think a lot of this has been we really have to pay attention to this case, because what is really important to me about this case is how viral it's gone in the right wing media. I mean, we're talking millions and millions and millions of views. It is right now the kind of, frankly, racist, classist hate that is being spewed from the right wing needs to be dismantled a little bit because this feels a little bit like a Kyle Rittenhouse moment. It feels, of course, like another moment uh, of the Getz tro- the Getz case in 1980 in the subway um, when this man, Bernard Getz, just killed, I guess, just felt like killing young black men. And, you know, eventually it came out through the process of protesting and you know, putting it forward that he was actually a hardcore bigot, like he was actually a hardcore bigot, but he pretended like he was just a vigilante, but they found him. He said it in court. I think he said the N word in court, like he did not care. He reached a certain point where he was just going to be publicly out here talking this way, or it was exposed in court. I don't remember which one. Nonetheless, he was absolutely a hardcore bigot. And that didn't come forward until years after the case. But people look back and said, you know what? New Yorkers stood with Getz because they're like, I'm tired of the crime. I'm tired of being afraid on the subway. So 
the right wing is leaning into that very, very, very strongly because they know people have fear because it is real. But that isn't the solution. Vigilante violence can't be the solution because if vigilante violence was the solution, then why would we be here if in the 80s it didn't work? Why would it work now? It doesn't really make sense. And a lot of what the right wing media is focusing on is the fact that Jordan had 41 arrests and he had prior attacked people on the subway or pushed people or whatever it might be. And I think all of that is very true. All of that is very real. But the majority of those arrests, number one, were for jumping the turnstile. And secondarily, you know, the, 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 the punishment for assault is not death. We do not have a death sentence anywhere in the United States that if you get into a bar fight, for example, that that immediately you should be lined up and shot because that's essentially what happened here is that an individual civilian, not a police officer, felt that he could literally take be judge, jury and executioner of a man whose crime, which people are obsessed with the fact that he's a criminal, his crime was jumping the turnstile and possibly getting into fights and assaulting people. And even some of the the victims who were assaulted by him said in interviews that we actually would want to see him get help. That's what we would want, because I think that's what a society that has any level of conscience should believe. It's fascistic the way that the right wing is talking. It's fascistic talking points to to lead us down a path of, frankly, just utter tyranny. I mean, if you lived in a society where there is no law and order in any way, I mean, and I love how the right wing always talks about law and order. But the reality is, is that vigilante violence is the opposite of law and order. It's the opposite of a court system. It's the opposite of a justice system. It's in every way, shape and form completely just, I, I guess, just uncontrolled process of justice. This is the opposite of democracy in any way, shape, or form. It's fascistic. It's fascistic to believe this and stand by this. And it's it's more like what Saudi Arabia does, where they stone people to death. I mean, it's just really frustrating to me to hear a lot of these arguments. I, I've talked with people, I've heard people in New York who fall on all different sides of kind of how they feel about this because they're afraid. But we can't let fear make us give in to the fascistic impulse to co-sign and be okay with vigilante violence, because that's not what a society should do. And I'll say this too, and Natalia, I'm curious what you think about this, but you know, Governor Hochul had some really disgusting comments to say about Jordan Neely. I mean, essentially, she was like, well, he got what's coming to him. I mean, I, I forget the exact terminology she used, but essentially... Like, you know, the eventually, like, I guess the crime catches up with you mindset towards Jordan, not towards Daniel, towards Jordan. And so Hochul and Eric Adams are giving us two options. Either we're going to get more police or we're going to be OK and co-sign vigilante violence. But there is another option. Like you mentioned, Chris, we could house everybody tomorrow. The, the capitalist system has no interest in fixing the crisis because it doesn't benefit It doesn't benefit the system. It doesn't benefit the wealthy. They couldn't care less about the people on the street who are dying. And the vast majority of us as everyday working class people, we are more like Jordan Neely than we'll ever be like Governor Hochul. I mean, that's just the reality. So we can't be have our minds twisted and so easily brought over to being okay with with cold blooded murder just because we, we feel that we might be different from Jordan because next week we might be the same. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, Rachel. Like, um, you know, we are really, really close to poverty in this country, right? Working people in general are, right? Um, You know, think about what if you missed two months of work or what if you um, had all all this medical debt from an accident or what have you, right? We're to some extent, we're one emergency away from homelessness. 
because a lot of us live paycheck to paycheck and don't make very much money and rent, food, gas, those prices are always going up, right? So um, in many ways, we're far more close to, you know, a homeless person on a subway than Eric Adams, than any sort of, um, you know, CEO, than a landlord, right? Um, And I think this is a mindset that the ruling class deliberately tries to, you know, convince people out of, right? They want to convince people that, um, they're, you know, they're actually the most like them. They want to protect the people, you know, they're the good guys, right? Um, when in reality, it couldn't be farther from the truth. And when you also just look at, um, Eric Adams, for example, like his policies, um, have taken a, a devastating toll on, on working class New Yorkers in many ways, right? Like cuts to, um, retirees, healthcare, cuts to schools, um, cuts to libraries, um, sweeping homeless people off the streets. Um, getting thousands of, of more cops in the subways, even though they can't apprehend a mass shooter, somehow that's necessary, right? Um, you know, uh, the subway shooter was not apprehended by police, actually by a civilian. But, um, you know, and, and rent prices have gone up, um, prices in general for everything, right? Um, he actually, Eric Adams actually cut the Department of Homeless Services by um, $615 million, I believe was the number, um, and at the moment, there are about 70,000 people in New York City's um, shelters. This is not even counting unsheltered homeless people. I believe a- around 21,000 of those are children. And, you know, if you really do the math, that means that the city is spending less than $300 on each homeless person, I believe. Um, and that really goes to show what their priorities are, right? Um, and I think that um, just to go back to your point about the right wing, Rachel, I think it's a really important one because, you know, the right wing is always sort of operating on ethos alone, right? They really, they really prey on people's emotions. They don't have a lot of facts that are actually in their favor. And so if there is fear, the right wing is going to latch onto that and do everything it can to use that fear against working people to divide us, right? Um, and that's what they're doing in this case. I think that this case is a really um, good example of how right-wing and white supremacist ideology really functions, right? Um, because um, they're pointing out the fact that uh, Jordan Neely had about, I, th- I think I've heard 44 or 41 arrests. Um, four of them were for assault. Um, and that's something that they've latched onto really, really hard um, because it proves that he's violent or whatever, allegedly. Um, but I think that, you know, in the larger context, when you actually look at the facts, you can see that homeless people are put in dire situations every single day. Uh, a lot of them are mentally ill or have substance abuse um, problems or are driven to be mentally ill because of their circumstances. They're put in extremely dire situations where they're criminalized from for using the bathroom, for sleeping, for hanging out, for doing essentially what we're able to do in our own homes. Um, and, you know, a lot of that violence, um, really affects people, right? Um, Actually, homeless people are 11 times more likely to be arrested than someone who's not homeless because their entire lives are lived publicly, right? Um, And, you know, homelessness um, perpetuates violence. It perpetuates the perpetrators of violence, right? Um, It's a a cycle, right? Um, And I think this idea that, um, I think that a really good way to look at it is like, we don't have, like, there's no such thing as like a perfect victim, right? Um, we're all, um, products of our circumstances and we need to, um, understand the larger context of, um, why we do things, why people are driven in certain situations. And I do also want to say this, um, 
There was a misquote that was attributed to Jordan Neely right in the beginning of his reporting. I think it was by NBC or something. It was something along the lines of, I'll hurt anybody on this train. Um, and according to the news source, it was a law enforcement source that had given that quote. Um, but this was not, um, this was not something that the, the eyewitness heard him say at all. And, um, it's actually has not been proven. Um, I think they, I think they stopped reporting on that quote. I, I haven't heard it in a while. Um, but that just really goes to show, um, how even like, you know, allegedly objective media, local media is really promoting the ideology of the right wing because they're promoting the ideology of the police. A lot of the times these local media sources will just take a police press release and write on it, like report on it verbatim, no questioning, right? No, no independent investigation, right? Which is what journalists are supposed to be doing. And I think that every single time we see these sort of ideas um, about homeless people, especially Black homeless people, being violent or being aggressive or threatening um, to white people in the city or, or what have you, um, we need to question that because it's um, it's something that's very often like um, reported on dishonestly or just outright lied about. Um, so I think that it's good for us to understand what the right wing is talking about and be able to refute all those points one by one. Um, but at the end of the day, they're they're using pure emotion for their arguments because those those arguments really fall apart. Yeah. And one thing I'll say quickly, Chris, before I know you want to hop in here, I, I just want to say this, that that you cannot trust the media, especially period, but especially on this case. And I'll say this because I was interviewed. I'm very I'm not going to get over this. I'm so mad about this. I was interviewed by a journalist. I think it was for uh, ABC New York. And I, I, I had a really I, I had a really strong I felt really strong about what I said, because I was talking about the fact that the reason why we're in the circumstance that we're in is 100 percent because of Eric Adams and the way that they cut my interview. I mean, I was stunned when I saw the interview. I was like, oh my God, they made me sound like I was so right wing. I'm a socialist. Like I'm a leftist. There's, you had to do some kind of crazy post work to make it sound that way, but that's exactly what they're going to do because the editorial desk wants what the editorial desk wants. That's it. That's what journalists are supposed to do. Whether we like it or not, journalists craft a narrative. They craft a story. There is inherent bias in journalism. And there's no way out of that. And so to me, as a journalist, as a people's journalist, and I know you too, as somebody at People's Dispatch, you know, the, the, the role of a people's journalist is to embrace that fact that at the end of the day, we have to tell stories for the people where people are coming from. And I think that one of the things the media has left out is that not only were there hundreds of people protesting and saying that they were very, very upset by Jordan's death, but there are even more voices out in New York that are saying that too, that are not being interviewed, that are not being put on camera. And the way that it's being cut, this weird both sidesness of it all is absolutely disturbing. But Chris, hop in here for the last few minutes. Well, I want to add too to this, especially when we're talking about the right wing, just how insidious it is, because there's been a video going around and whether it is or is not Jordan Neely, I, you know, is not the point, but it's, uh, you know, a Michael Jackson impersonator. And maybe it, it, it may it may be him. And it, but it doesn't matter. But the whole th the right wing is passing this video around where it's like clearly edited, but it's like he's, you know, saying like anti gay slurs and like attacking verbally, like insulting drag queens and stuff. And, you know, they're trying to say, oh, look, you know, it's they're pushing this racist narrative of like black people hate queer people. And I'm like, it, it's we have to stand up against that. Like, as a queer white person, like, I'm not 
I still say Jordan Neely should have lived. Like, that is not the primary contradiction here. Even if that video is real, I don't care if it is or not. Like, don't fall for that super basic racist right-wing stuff where they try to say, oh, you know, all of a sudden they're trying to stand with like drag queens, like <laughs> the right wing is, is trying to stand with drag queens and then and, and queer folks. And like, we're not going to be fooled by that. It's so it's so, you know, offensive. And we've seen that. And it's getting more and more into the mainstream. Um, but I, I also want to talk about just the police response to some of these protests that have been happening, because I saw, you know, um, over you know the past few days, there have been massive protests. Um, you know there have been a number of them all over this all over the city, and I've been following a lot of them on on Twitter. Um, and it looks like you know especially over the past few days, we have seen the NYPD get more and more brutal. There was a, a protest, and maybe y'all can correct me on the location here, but they sh- you know they stopped an F train. Uh, the subway. They stopped an F train, you know, on the tracks. Some people got on the tracks and stopped it for a while. And they chose the F train because that is the train that Jordan Neely was killed on. Um, and then, you know, police seem to be dragging people out of the station. There was an incident uh, on Monday night, the 8th, where they arrested a an elderly man, it seemed, who was using a cane to walk and then also arrested a reporter who clearly in the video, you can see she has a press pass um, and like very nice, fancy camera equipment, you know, arrested her. It seems like they are you know, being extremely brutal in their crackdown on some of these protests against uh, the system. Uh, you know, for the murder of Jordan Neely. And these protests are saying that, yeah, this guy who killed him should be arrested, should be charged, but also pointing out everything we've been talking about here, that it's, you know, this is not one incident. This is actually an indictment of an entire system that has allowed and enabled uh, and encouraged vigilante acts like this to happen, but also encouraged and allowed and requires people to be homeless and hungry. Definitely, Chris. I mean, I think we are going to have to leave it right there. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to say this just to close us out here that I think this this where we started, that this is an indictment of the capitalist system is where we have to end it because it's it's true. It's a full indictment of the capitalist system. It's a systemic problem. Jordan Neely is not the first. This is not going to be the first time this comes up in New York. This is going to continue to come up because the issue of homelessness is going to get even worse. I mean, Mass evictions are coming. We're looking at and we were excited to have an in-depth soon on this, too, about the economic crisis that is looming. But as the economic crisis continues to worsen, we're going to see even more evictions. And with that, the city's only solution that they've put forward is that they they're going to offer more police, more police to evict you, more police to police where you can be outside where when you have nowhere else to go. But the reality is, is that fundamentally people aren't even in the, the the idea even that that people who are homeless are are all mentally ill and that's why they're on the streets is not even true it's a myth people are on the streets because the shelters are dangerous and the shelters are mismanaged and there's oftentimes no place and space for people so it's deeply profoundly the crisis of the capitalist system and as the economic crisis worsens so of course do all of the other problems that come with it But I want to say this, there is another solution, one that we talk about all the time here. We could have housing for all. We could have jobs for all. There was no reason why Jordan Neely couldn't have housing and couldn't have employment and couldn't have anything and everything he needed, all the food that he needed in the richest country in the history of humanity. So that option, that other option, of course, is socialism. But either way, I'm going to have to leave it right there. You've been listening to Covert Action Bulletin. And we will have to leave it there. But before we go, if you like what you heard today and you want to support independent journalism, go to patreon.com backslash covert action magazine and become a patron. 
We can only do this show with the support of our listeners. So if you want to hear more, be sure to go to our Patreon to support. And you've been listening to Covert Action Bulletin with Rachel Hu. And Chris Garaffa. Covert Action Bulletin is the official show of Covert Action Magazine and is brought to you by way of WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio in New York. If you've missed any of our episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts by searching for Covert Action Bulletin or listen on your station's archive. So we are out of time for today. Thanks for listening. Covert Action.